Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. All right, welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over what is titled Logical Problems of Deification. So we're starting on to the human aspect of deification and what that means. And we defined sort of the concept of the Godhead in Mormon thought, and then we went over some problems with that in the last couple episodes. And as far as I'm understanding it, this chapter kind of goes over several views in kind of different traditions of deification and you know, what the problems are with those views, as well as what they're kind of trying to get at. But I mean, you start out this chapter basically by saying every Christian religion has to deal with this because several places in the New Testament, it mentions deification. And so just kind of as an introduction there, what are kind of the things that are requiring all the different Christian religions to have some sort of deification? Where does that idea come from in general? Well, I cite a number of scriptures, and we'll go over them in the next chapter where I focus on the scriptural basis for deification. But basically, you have the scriptures in Ephesians, Colossians, talking about participating in the fullness of the Godhead and the fullness of divinity. And what that means is that there's this notion of fullness coming from the Greek term pleroma, which means essentially that whatever the fullness of divinity is for the divine persons, that's something that we participate in. We share in that fullness. You have the statements in Second Peter that we participate in the divine nature. You have the statements in John 17 that we will be one just as the divine persons are one. And you have the strong notion that we partake of the fullness of the stature of Christ, for instance, in Philippians. And so all of these scriptural bases require a notion of deification, but the strongest notion of deification is inherent in the notion of incarnation. That is, that God became man, that man might become God, which is a statement that numerous patristic fathers asserted. And the bottom line is, is that the expectation is that when we participate fully in God's glory, knowledge, power, and presence that we will be everything that God is and have a fullness of inheriting everything that God has. But it's not merely inheriting what he has, but everything that he is. And so these are the scriptural notions that Christians must account for in terms of what their doctrine of deification is and what it entails. Okay, and then I guess just to kind of orient us, why did you choose to lay out the the problems first and then going over the views kind of in the way that you do. What made you choose the particular traditions that we're going to go over? There's been a good deal of work done on the notion of deification, especially in the past 25 years. There's been a growing recognition among Protestants who have eschewed the notion of deification, that in fact there is deification entailed in the concepts of justification and sanctification, which are the very bedrock of Protestant theology. There's always been a strong notion of deification within Eastern Orthodox thought because there are a number of Eastern fathers who expressly taught the notion of deification or theosis, that humans will participate in the divine nature, and they explain what they mean. It's a strange combination because the Eastern Orthodox theologians focus primarily on the vast chasm that exists between the nature of human life and divine life, but they have side by side with that a very strong tradition 
of participating fully in the divine nature. And in Catholicism, it's actually part of the catechism that we will be deified. Even Thomas Aquinas taught a form of deification. So this is a kind of teaching that is ubiquitous in all strands of Christianity. It's recognized as part and parcel, but more importantly, it's the logical outcome and implication of the very notion that Jesus Christ was fully God and became a mortal among us and then was fully deified in the sense that he was resurrected because the human mortal life that inhabited his body was replaced by immortal life. And there's a sense that to the extent that we participate in immortal life, it has to be divine life that is giving us life. But if it's divine life that's giving us life, then we also participate in the divine life. We participate in the divine nature to that extent. And so what we're asking is, okay, what does it mean? What are the scriptures asserting? And and what does deification mean? And that's why I approach it from the problems, because obviously there are problems in each of these traditions in asserting which they don't assert, by the way, but if they were to assert that we become fully what God is, then they would have an issue. Each of the traditions that I've just discussed have a very basic logical problem with deification, and that is the very notion that a human could be anything like God has to be greatly attenuated in each of those traditions. And so the notion that human beings can be deified, that they can participate in the divine nature, seems to be denied by the very notion of God that they have and the notion of human beings. In the ontological gulf, God is uncreated and everything else is created. And we can't be like God in any sense at all. And and they all recognize this in their elucidation of their views of deification. They all recognize that we can't really be anything like God because the nature of God's life is so different from ours. And so it takes a good deal of explaining what they mean I mean, we'll even see that evangelicals are saying that, well, we can use the term deification, but we can't really mean it when we say it. So, obviously, there are problems in each of them adopting what has been a long-standing doctrine that just won't go away within Christian thought. Okay, great. And I think with that, we'll just kind of jump in and go through each section and pick out what we want to cover there. So, the first one is, what is the divine nature in which we share? And so, this is just the question in which each tradition would have to ask. And a few quotes from your book, you say, The essence of the concept of deification is the glorified life of God in which we participate through the incarnation of Christ. And so, easy to say, but then you'd have to kind of define that. So this next quote, and remind me, is this a particular point of view in this next quote, or is this like you just saying that this is what it is? Or like this, is this, is this you or is this saying like in Catholicism, this is their point of view or something like that? No, I'm, I'm asserting that this is the essence of deification in all of these traditions and also in Mormonism. We share all of the, we share this in common. Let me give a couple of, of analogies to begin with. The first analogy is, you know, you've got a light source and you've got these little glow sticks and if you hold them up to the light, you turn off the light, you can see that they glow. Well, that's because of phosphorus. What happens is the photons in the light interact with the phosphorus to cause it to glow. So the glow stick begins to participate in the nature of the light, even though it's a pale reflection. Another analogy that is often used is you have a spoon, it's metal, it's put in a fire, and the spoon becomes hot. And so it participates in the nature of the fire because the fire is also hot. A better analogy is that you've got fire and all you've got to do is take and pass the fire around because everything that will burn can have the nature of fire. It can be consumed in the fire. 
you know, all of these analogies are, are merely analogies for a reason. The underlying notion is based upon vitalism. Vitalism is the notion that there is this kind of life force that is external to us that enters into a body and it gives life to the body. And so the notion that we're talking about is that God's very life is, and there's this technical term we've talked about before in Greek, it's Zoe. Zoe is spiritual life. It's the kind of life energy that God has. And when we become Christians, this light enters into our hearts and begins to grow. And so this light is growing in us. And so the moment that we open our hearts to accept the light is justification. We're accepted into relationship with God, and we enter into this relationship by opening our hearts to accept God. But when we open our hearts, the light begins to flow into us and begins to make us over in God's image because it's the light that originates with God. And so we have this divine energy, and in Orthodox thought in particular, they use the term the energies. They use the term energia, and its semantic field is essentially the same as it is for English. It means the very energy that gives us life. So this energy enters into us, and it communicates to us some properties that belong to God. In the tradition, they want to say, well, the properties that it communicates to us are those that are communicable. So there are some properties that can be communicated and some that can't. Obviously, being uncreated is one of the properties that can't be communicated to us in the tradition. But we participate in immortality, for instance, because God's life is immortal, his life enters into us. And so the life that we have is a life that never dies. It's immortal life. But it's more than that. It's also divine life. It's the kind of life that brings the knowledge of God with it. And so revelation is also a result. The spirit of revelation, this knowledge that flows into us, is is having the light of God enter into us and begin to give energy to every part of our, our body and spirits. But not merely that, the power of God enters into us. We can perform miracles. And to what extent the power of God enters into us, you know, we can discuss the extent, but the tradition would say, well, to some extent, but not a full extent, because to be like God fully in power would mean that we have maximal power. And what the difference between Mormonism and the other tradition is that Mormonism says, no, the fullness of these divine properties can exist in us in every respect. There's no divine property that God has that we can't have. And there's no divine property that we have in part now that we can't have in fullness to be exactly everything that God is in participation in the divine nature. Okay, well, that pretty much summed up that quote, so I'll just skip that and go right to this next part, if that's okay with you. So, regardless of your tradition, if I guess you believe in the basics of what it asserts in Scripture, say, deification essentially entails these three characteristics. One, what was lost in the fall of Adam has been restored, and the relationship with God, damaged in the fall, has been healed. 2. A new life dwells in the disciple to restore the divine image and to effect progression from one glory to another, to be like God. And 3. The shared life leads to glorious union with God, and whatever was lost in the fall is now immortal and incorruptible life in close relationship with God. And so, those are the essential characteristics I'm guessing is that you get that from scripture, or why are those the essential characteristics, first off? This is a summary, again, of what is shared by all of the Christian traditions. This is the restoration of the image of God in us is especially emphasized, again, in, in Orthodox thought, but it's also discussed somewhat in strains of Protestant and Catholic thought, because what the fall does is, is the likeness and the image are effaced in us, that is, they're damaged. 
And so we're not a real full reflection of what God is. But because of the life of Christ and what he did, everything that was lost in the fall can be regained. So obviously this is an expression of of this simple fact that we're saying that the animal life that we have in our in our mortal bodies, you know, the bodies that come from the ground and this process of evolution, whatever this animal life in it, and it comes from the transporting energy across cell membranes and, and the exchange of energy because of the food we eat and, you know, that's ultimately derived from the sun, that kind of life is replaced with divine life that then sustains us with life. And that's the kind of life that Adam had before he fell. He, he didn't participate in this natural life that we now have. So our natural life, it begins to be fully restored. And to some extent, a Christian would want to say, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't what a Christian believes, because there are Christians who have false beliefs and are still Christians. In fact, there's not a single Christian that's ever lived that could say, I have fully grasped everything that Christianity teaches accurately. And so it's not about that. What it's about is I've entered into a relationship with God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and they now indwell in me. They are in me, and I am in them because the life force that we share, this light that emanates from God's presence to give life and energy to everything in the universe, is concentrating in me and giving me life now, and I am made over into a new person as a result. And I begin from this moment forward to have the image of Christ in me. These are all scriptural terms. So in the moment that God's life enters into me, and for Christians, it is accepting God. And then because we accept God, being baptized so that we reflect Christ in our image. Because now what we're doing is symbolically reflecting the life of Christ. We're dying with him and and raising with him in the resurrection. And so this life now resides in us. So the, the life that Adam enjoyed, which was immortal and incorruptible life, is now given to us again to activate and actuate us with its life force. Right, and then I guess this just kind of reiterates that you don't have to comment on this. I'll just read what you wrote. You said, deification is more than just restoration of what was lost in the fall, and hence more than a return to the status of pre-fall Adam. It is more than just being forgiven of sin and therefore being justified. It entails a dynamic and ongoing process of growth in relationship with God beyond what was enjoyed by the pre-fall Adam. So it's kind of like what you're talking about there. Well, but it's, it's more than that. So instead of being just the moment of justification where the life of God enters into us, we grow from glory to glory. And this is a process called sanctification. Sanctification is a process where our lives and the works that we do enter into a synergy to make us over in Christ's image. And because Christ's life is in us, we now begin to reflect his love in our acts. And we now begin to act as Christ would act. And the light grows in us. So it's not like once saved, everything's already done and there's nothing more to Christian thought. If that were all there were to Christianity, any form of Christianity, it would be really banal, boring, and stupid. And certainly not what Christ taught. But because this life enters into us, we begin to grow in the light from one glory to another. And it's a self-surpassing type of a glory. And if we're growing in the process of sanctification, we're growing in the image of God. We're growing to more perfectly reflect God in our lives and to more fully mature our humanity to be divinity. And so that's the notion that we're talking about. And then you've introduced this, and we'll get into it later. I just want to read this quote to introduce it, and then we'll get into it as each of the sections unfold. But just to introduce this problem here, you say, If all the properties of divine nature are so different from properties essentially possessed by humans, that no human could truly have a divine property, 
then human sharing in the divine nature is logically impossible. Meaning that, you know, what's clearly what is divine and what is a human nature, as at least if you believe in creation ex nihilo, as all the traditions that we're talking about here do, then that seems impossible. You say, however, that is where the incarnation comes into play. Christ is a concrete instance of a single person who possessed both human and divine nature in common. Therefore, full and complete humanity and full and complete divinity must be logically compatible within a single person. So that's the problem they have to deal with. Like, well, we have this ontological gap, yet we have this Christ character that obviously is the most essential thing to Christianity, because it's in the name. And that's kind of what we're going to deal with in each of these traditions. So... This is the central strength of Mormonism, and it's where each of their traditions fails to be truly Christian. And that is in the very bedrock, the, the foundation for everything, is that a fullness of divinity, complete, perfect divinity, must be able to be joined in the same person with what it means to be fully and completely human. In their tradition, that's logically impossible. It just can't be. And what they're doing is denying that there is a coherent Christology. They're denying the very essential claims about Christ and who and what he was. I mean, there's this really interesting, and it's not merely a paradox, it is a gaping logical contradiction at the very center of traditional Christian thought, where they must deny the very foundational claim that they make about God and human nature. A very strong point, and we'll see that reiterated over and over as we go through these things. So, and just to drive that home, I'll just read these last two quotes, and we'll go to the next section. So you say, here's where the LDS deification goes beyond the conventional view of deification. By our participating in the divine life, the intelligence, glory, and power of God are also imparted to us. We share as one in God's own experience of all reality. Here's the reasoning. The relationship of the Father and the Son is such that what the Father knows, the Son also knows. What the Father wills, the Son also wills. What the Father does, the Son does in unison. When we enter into the same union of indwelling love with them, then what Father and Son know, we also know. What the Father and Son will, we also will. What the Father and Son do, we also do. We share as co-knowers and co-creators with the divine persons in the Godhead. Thus, the divine properties that are communicable to humans through the union of deification entail that we also share their divine knowledge, power, presence, and co-creativity. And that's not possible in any of the other views. And, you know, this we're not even talking about the Mormon view necessarily here. It's just we want to point that out from the get-go, that there's a big distinction there of what's even possible as far as deification goes. So this next quote gives rise to kind of a question, just a clarification, I guess. So you say, In Mormon thought, there is a weak but not a strong ontological difference between God and humans. It is not possible for humans to be gods or to realize inherent divinity unless there is a physical change actuated by entering into a relationship of indwelling unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but there is no logical impossibility in such a change. So, I've heard you just say many times in the past that there is not any ontological difference necessarily. So, what do you mean there's a, there's a weak ontological difference? Let me give a couple of examples. So, an acorn or an oak seed was nothing like an oak. And yet it has the full capacity to become what the oak is if it undergoes certain physical kinds of changes and fully matures to grow what it naturally will be. Oxygen and hydrogen have the capacity to be something different than they are, but only in union. Now, they're not changed intrinsically, and this is where this analogy falls apart. 
oxygen and hydrogen always remain oxygen and hydrogen. They just enter into molecular unity, and the properties of water arise from that unity. What we're saying in deification, that it's due to the fact that the parts participate in the whole, that they are changed and modified so that they are something more when they're in relationship than they are when they're not in relationship. But the change is actually in the parts and not merely in the whole. So a weak ontological difference means that it's not something that we are barred from participating in. We simply have to undergo a profound change in order to fully mature or to fully realize the inherent capacities that we have. A strong ontological difference means it can't be realized at all. It's logically impossible because of the kind of thing that we are to become the other kind of thing. So no matter how much I grow, I'm never going to turn into a kangaroo. So yeah, an acorn has potential to be an oak tree, but a frog obviously can never be anything like an oak tree. That's just, I understand what you're saying now. Exactly. That's the distinction. That's the difference between a weak ontological difference so we still have some changing to do. We haven't fully realized neither our humanity or our potential for divinity, but we have the capacity to do both. And this is the difference between Mormonism, again, and the tradition. In the tradition, we don't have that capacity. There's a strong ontological difference between human nature and divine nature. It's the very problem that I just pointed to, where I think Christianity just falls apart at the very center of its claims about human nature and divine nature. Mormonism bridges the logical problem and the logical gap. Okay, and then now we're going to get into the different problems. So first off is the section titled The Logic of Deification, the Exchange Formula. So this is different ways of articulating deification. So I'm going to give this formula, and then throughout the chapter you kind of develop it through different views, which you can kind of go into here, but I didn't write them all down just because I figured we could just sum that part up. So first off, this exchange formula is basically this. So this exchange formula is how Christ helps humanity reach divinity, and there's many different iterations of it that we'll go over here. So, number one, by being united in Christ, we share the same essence, substance, nature as Christ. Two, Christ is the same essence, substance, nature as the Father. And three, therefore, by being united with Christ, we share the same essence, substance, nature as the Father. So that's the basic idea of this exchange formula, that Christ is man and Christ is God, and if we're adopted, or in all this, you know, all this language of the New Testament of becoming Christ, becoming one with him, by becoming one with Christ, we're therefore somehow sharing in the essence of God as well. So explain this, and then you can go to town as much as you want, just succinctly if you can, just the different iterations that you kind of develop throughout this section in the book. Well, this is a very simple formula. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, and it has to be. And essentially, that's what is being said here. If By being united with Christ, we share his nature, and Christ has the same nature as the Father. It follows that we have the same nature as the Father. But the Father is fully divine, and that means that when Christ fully shares in the Father's nature, he's fully divine. And if we share in that nature, we are also are fully divine. Now, this exchange formula shows up many ways you get statements by some of the very early patristic fathers like Irenaeus that Christ became man, that man might become God. I mean, you get a very similar statement by Lorenzo Snow, right? As man is, God once was, as God now is, man may become. That's the exchange formula. And you find iterations of this exchange formula in just about every major theologian in Christian history. This exchange formula becomes another one of the memes that simply is fixed in Christianity. It just simply is the case that Christ became human so that we could become what he is. 
and what he is is a divine person fully divine participating in the fullness of the father and so in every form of christianity you know you have this form of exchange formula and then the question becomes well can they really affirm the exchange formula and the answer is no Every time they really start filling out what the exchange formula means, they have to start drawing all kinds of lines and building all kinds of fences to make sure that we don't misunderstand the massive difference between human nature and divine nature. Okay. And then, yeah, I mean, that's the basic idea of that. So next we'll move over to Jacob for the next section. So this next section is called deification. So again, these are the problems. So the problems of deification and then justification by faith alone. And we'll start out with your quote where you say, It is common among Protestant exegetes to claim that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the hallmark of Christian belief. It is therefore easy to detect why Protestants would be uneasy with the doctrine of deification. It entails the denial or rejection of the most central doctrine of the Reformation. It is precisely here where Protestants must part company with the doctrine of deification. Now let's get into why. The bottom line is that when we look very carefully at the way that Protestants define deification, we have an internal contradiction. Here's why. They want to say that deification is essentially the same as justification. But justification, remember, is an external way that we are regarded by God. It has nothing to do with us. And so we're justified because of God's judgment that we are just as a matter of grace, but it has nothing to do with us. So there isn't a real intrinsic change in a human being as a result of justification. It's merely an external declaration, like a judge saying that this defendant is innocent of the charges. The defendant is still everything that he was before the declaration. The judge just sees it differently now because the trial has been held and they've come to a conclusion. It's the same way that Protestants see the way that God views us in justification. The problem then arises that in deification, while we're extrinsically justified by grace and thus regarded as righteous based on our faith, nevertheless, in justification, Christ's righteousness dwells within us and continues to grow in us through the process of justification until we're fully glorified in communion with God. But that means that there's an internal change in us. And so justification is just an external declaration. It becomes an internal change imparting righteousness to us and imparting divine life to us, which would mean that the external nature of justification is being denied because there's something intrinsic happening to us, and so there's a contradiction at the center of the doctrine. And then you also go on to say that you know the, the Orthodox view of salvation is pretty complex, because first, they reject anything like original sin, and they maintain that the image of God in which God created us remains intact despite Adam's sin. Is this saying that part of that justification, like you were saying, is you know we're being declared innocent, it's like we're in Adam's state before he ever partook of the fruit? What they're saying is that there's something that we don't lose in the fall. We maintain both our free will and our moral intelligence to make free moral choices. That's not taken away from us in the fall. Protestants of all stripes maintain that humankind lost that as a result of the fall. In the Orthodox tradition, they assert that we maintain the image of God, which means that we maintain our rationality, our ability to make moral decisions, and our free will. In fact, they equated human free will with precisely human nature. This was what was essential. And it includes also an orientation toward God, not away from God, as the Protestant doctrine of original sin teaches. Thus, in Orthodox thought, as in Catholic thought, we remain free to accept the transforming of life that Christ offers to us to dwell in us by an, our act of our own will. 
But because it's an act of will, it's not merely an external justification. It's an intrinsic change in us. And so the Orthodox and Catholics see this in a fundamentally different manner. So going back to the Protestant tradition, let's talk a little bit about how they define deification. Uh, You say that the Protestant deification can be defined as a person, S, who shares in the divine nature to the extent that S, one, through faith given as a gift through participation in Christ's immortal life, Two, is thereby extrinsically justified by grace and thus regarded as righteous based on the faith. And three, Christ's righteousness dwells in S and continues to grow in S through the process of sanctification until S is fully glorified by the divine glory in communion with God. Now, you were saying that the Orthodox view is sort of like that, but where are we differentiating here? Well, in the Orthodox view, justification isn't merely an external recognition of our righteousness based upon our faith or regarding our faith as establishing our righteousness. In the Orthodox tradition, there is an actual change in us, and so they don't have this problem. There is an intrinsic change which is entailed in the doctrine of deification. And so this problem that Protestantism has, Orthodox and Catholic thought don't have, and neither does Mormonism. And just to to kind of put it more in layman's terms, this is the I've confessed Christ and now I'm saved type of justification, right? Yeah, it is. I've confessed Christ, I'm saved, and I can't lose my my salvation. It's all done, and there's nothing more to do. Now, there really isn't any Protestant who actually believes that. Protestantism has a robust notion of sanctification. So you have to put the idea of salvation by grace or justification by grace through faith into the context of a full life, which would include also the process of sanctification. And so when Protestants talk about justification as deification, or when I talk with run-of-the-mill Christians who say, no, I've been saved, everything's done, there's nothing more that can happen, I can't fall, I'm saved, nothing more to do, (laughs) you know, glory to God, thank you, Jesus. I, I just, you know, I understand that they really don't understand what Protestant theologians have actually taught in this arena. That's kind of a caricature of Protestant thought by saying, you know, it's, I'm saved by Jesus. And, you know, you could find Mormons just as well who don't understand anything about the doctrine of justification or sanctification. So next, let's talk about some people that have have looked to defend this view. And so we have John Wesley. Is he Protestant? He is the founder of Methodism. He's a huge figure in Protestantism. Well, he's a huge Protestant in the Arminian tradition of Methodism, so... Okay, so for Wesley, justification actually occurs in a moment and then opens the door to gradual growth in Christ to become holy or sanctified. So in his order of salvation, what he says is that every person has a gift that constitutes our shared humanity in the imago die, or to choose and accept God. Uh, Number two, God grants convincing grace to bring us to freely exercise this gift of freedom to accept God. And number three, when we choose to accept Christ, we are justified by grace. Number four, when we accept this gift and are justified, Christ enters into us and restores the image of our pre-fall righteousness. And number five, this regenerated image allows us to work cooperatively with God to become increasingly righteous and holy in the process known as sanctification. So what I'm doing here is showing that in, in a fuller explanation of Protestant thought, This kind of problem with deification, that is where you have both an extrinsic and an intrinsic change in a person through justification, 
what they do is break it down into different steps. So there's a moment of justification where we are accepted into a saving relationship with Christ by grace. But it's not all explained or done at that point. We then move forward, we're regenerated, and we begin the process of sanctification. And I have the greatest respect for the Wesley brothers, who were superb theologians. I've read their full works, which is an amazing thing because their full works are massive, but they're worth reading. And they were just published about five years ago in in their full and complete context with commentary, so it's well worth the read. So next we have Robert Rakestraw. He's writing in the Evangelical Quarterly, so he's evangelical. He's an evangelical theologian. Okay. So he's looking at this doctrine of deification from an evangelical view or an evangelical theology and points out some big-time issues that I would assume we're in agreement with as well. He goes on to say, perhaps the most obvious deficiency is the terminology itself. To speak of divinization, deification, and human beings becoming God seems to violate the historic Christian understanding of the essential qualitative distinction between God and the creation. Becoming like God appears to express more biblically the concept of the Christian's union and communion with God in sanctification. Why use terminology that, at first glance at least, will alienate those unfamiliar with this line of thinking in Christian terminology and thus miss what might be of benefit to them? Some may reply, however, that the shock value of the terms may be just what is needed to awaken the lethargic or defeated Christians to the truth of their union with Christ. It appears that he's saying, we're saying, you know, deification, divinization, these type of things, but that's not exactly what it is. It's more put out there to to shock people into to understanding that this is what they need. Well, yeah, I mean, what they want to do is talk about union with Christ and being one just as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are without recognizing what that entails. And so what they're saying is we have this basic distinction between God and the creation, which is more bedrock for us than any other belief we have. And so the the other talk that we have of becoming deified, of theosis, or, you know, that kind of talk, it's all just bunk when you get right down to it. It's not true. But we still need to have something where people realize what union with Christ means. And so we're going to use this It's not true, but it will shock them into recognizing what union with Christ really is and means. If you don't find that passing strange, I do. And you, in fact, say that strange to suggest that we ought to give up theological accuracy and truth for the sake of shock value. You continue, indeed, Rakestra is correct that for the entire tradition that adopts creation ex nihilo, the terms deification, divinization, theosis, becoming gods, and so forth, are theologically misleading and logically unsound. The reason this approach is unsound is that while it is accurate to say that we become like God in a remote and barely recognizable way, we do not become deified or partake in the divine nature. The ways in which we can participate in God's nature must be so attenuated, given the great ontological gulf between creator and creatures, that the entire notion of partaking of the divine nature is impossible. Yeah, and so now what we're going to do is is take a look at, okay, they've asserted that we can become something like God or participate in some properties that are communicable. What does that mean and is it valid? Yeah, so I'll take that. So, yeah, you the na- name that section. Failure of the distinction between communicable and incommunicable properties. So, like you said, there's kind of this idea of like, well, there's, you know, clearly we can't completely share in what God is because he's very different than us. So maybe there's some things that can be communicable to us and some that can't. So first off, you go at it from the orthodox point of view. So before we defined a Protestant deification, and here you say, let's define the Orthodox deification as follows. 
we share in the divine nature to the extent that one, God graciously changes our corrupt nature to conform to divine righteousness of the pre-fall Adam, and two, we share God's life by having the energies of God dwell within us and thus share the unity of the divine life in a sense appropriate to humans, and three, we share in the divine properties to the extent that they are communicable to humans through participation in the energies of God, such as goodness, holiness, love, justice, and mercy. When I talk about Orthodox deification, I'm talking about the, like the Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox traditions. And what they want to say, I mean, when they speak of God, they don't even speak of God positively. They adopt what's known as the via negativa in theology. We can't say anything positive about God at all. We can only say what he isn't. So, for instance, if we say that God is atemporal, we're not saying anything about him. We're saying he's not in time. If we talk about immutability, we're not saying something about him. We're saying what he's not. He's not changing. If we say something like he's impassable, we're not saying something about him. We're saying he doesn't have passions. So we can only define God negatively. This is known as negative theology. And so they have this tradition where we can't even positively address the properties that God has. We can only say what they aren't. And at the same time, they have a strong notion of theosis, that we participate in the divine attributes to the extent appropriate through theosis and deification. And so I want to test whether, given that kind of a distinction, a distinction, by the way, that Protestant exegetes and theologians would have to participate in, is there something that we can really say that we participate in in terms of the divine nature? Is there something really, given that kind of an approach and understanding of God, that we could share with God? So you say, and you know, we did talk about this a while ago, but you, and you bring it up here, you say, in the Attributes of God, Volume 1, you argue that none of these negative attributes is true of God if God enters into interpersonal relationships of the kind characterized in Scripture. You also argued that None of these negative properties can be accepted if it is true that Christ is both fully human and also fully divine. For anything that is fully human cannot possess the negative divine properties. Yet these attributes are commonly accepted as definitive of God in Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant traditions, though they have been modified or rejected more recently in many of these traditions. So the assertion that we participate in the divine nature by sharing such divine attributes as immortality, incorruption, righteousness, and holiness is effectively negated by the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, because our mode of possessing such attributes is ontologically different than God's. So this goes back to that same problem. Let me give an, an example here. They want to say that God is impeccable. They'll say that in the Greek Orthodox tradition, but the Protestants will actually say, and Catholics would say, God is perfectly good. This is something positive about God. He's good. And then we look at, okay, well, what do you mean by good? Well, God is essentially good. He is necessarily good. So it's impossible for God to do anything wrong. It's logically impossible. Well, if it's logically impossible for him to do anything wrong, how is his goodness moral in any sense? Because to have moral qualities, one has to have the ability to do evil but choose against it. One has to be free. But God isn't free in that sense. That's one of the communicable properties they're saying, but... Obviously, he can't communicate that to us because we don't possess that ontologically. That's right. I mean, the kind of goodness they're talking about isn't even the kind of goodness that they, we talk about when we talk about human goodness. And so when we begin to examine what we could share with God, it turns out that we can't share anything in the way that God possesses it. There's not a single property that we have that could be possessed remotely in the way that God has the property. 
And it turns out that nothing we mean in a univocal way when we talk about humans is true when we talk about God. So the entire distinction between communicable and incommunicable properties, those are properties that we can participate in or, or have to some extent, we can't. On the tradition, God is so different from us, there are no properties that are communicable to us. There's not a single divine property that we can really participate in in any way. When we look very carefully, and in the book I go into more detail on that, but it's a very detailed discussion. But the bottom line is, I just wanted to give an example to show why it is that the kinds of assertions that, well, you know, we can participate in the divine properties in a way that is proper and fit and logically possible for us to participate in. It turns out that there's no content to any of these properties when we try to say that we share them in the way that God does. Okay, yeah, and again, that harkens back to that creator-created distinction. It does, but for instance, the property I just gave of perfect goodness, that doesn't rely solely on that kind of distinction. It relies on the way that they define perfect goodness, and it's a kind of goodness that we can't possibly share in. And in fact, I would argue that it's not even goodness in human terms. God becomes arbitrary and that there's no real moral qualities that God could possibly possess. And so when we say God is good, it's a vacuous assertion. There's no cognitive content whatsoever in the assertion. It's just a string of words without meaning. So it's kind of like more, I don't know, I, I know this is stems from like platonic thought. So it kind of relegates God to basically the idea of goodness. And so it's like, yeah, how can you, you can't be the idea of goodness. That just doesn't even make sense. Yeah, I mean, the kind of things that they're asserting about God being good reduce the notion of good to something that we would never recognize as, as goodness if we were referring it to a human being. We'd just say, you call him good, but he doesn't possess any of the properties that we recognize as being good. All right, and next we'll move into the last section here, which Jacob will take. All right, and this one is called Monotheism, Simplicity, and Deification. I'm going to start this one off. Go ahead and read the quote. The most common argument against any view that humans possess divine attributes in a way that is univocal with God is that it violates monotheism. So if the monotheism at issue is metaphysical monotheism, then this argument is clearly correct. If the notion of metaphysical monotheism is adopted, then a coherent notion of the Trinity or Godhead appears to be impossible to formulate. Similarly, a consistent Christology also seems to be impossible to develop as if one is committed to a, a view requiring God to be essentially different than a human can possibly be. So, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the attributes of God and a lot about the Trinity and why that doesn't make sense, but what does this have to do with deification? Let's dive in. So... What we're saying is that if it's impossible for human beings to really participate in the divine nature, because it's logically possible that divine and human nature be possessed by the same person, we're back to a problem with Christology. If we're saying that there can only be one divine person, or one divine being, one divine entity, and human beings are fully divine and there's more than one God, then we violate metaphysical monotheism because there can be at most one of the kind fully divine or God. And so if you adopt metaphysical monotheism, it's logically impossible that there be more than one of that kind. Obviously, that means that deification can't be accepted because we can't be the same kind as God. And so these are problems that are at the very center of Christianity. You know, you've seen books and, and councils and thousands of years of theological thinking trying to overcome these problems. But one of the things I, I wanted to show in the three volumes is that they haven't really made a lot of headway in resolving these issues. 
And along comes Joseph Smith, changes the optic, gets rid of the culprit doctrine, creation ex nihilo, and recognizes a full notion of deification. And the problems just kind of dissolve, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, we can solve the problem now. It makes logical sense. And, well, yeah, we'll get in because not only is there a problem with God, then you have a, a big problem with the Son of God. This is why the conflation happens. Well, if there's only one, if we're in metaphysical monotheism, then somehow we have to make Jesus the same as God because you can't have two people that are divine. And right, you have to adopt modalism if you're going to have only one of the kind divine. And so, you know, that, but that's recognized as a heresy by everybody but Unitarian Pentecostals who adapt a full uh, modalism. The problem is, is that makes nonsense of the kinds of statements made in the New Testament about God and Jesus. So when you get right down to it, the best solution I've seen so far is the one offered by Joseph Smith and his revelations. All right. Uh, now, do we want to go through this step-by-step, step, the formal statement on the logical dilemma? We can. Let me give some background to the notion of simplicity. The notion of simplicity is a very complex, sophisticated doctrine, but it's easily summed up in the notion that God has no parts and no body and that he couldn't be complex in any way. So think of it this way. The problem at base is the concern that God could just fall apart from the inside if he has more than one part, right? Because anything that has parts can be disassembled into its individual parts. And so God couldn't be that way. He has to be a simple thing. That is, whatever he is, is so simple that there logically is no way to break it into different parts. It gets more complicated than that. I'm going to make the statement I fleshed this out in the first volume when I talk about simplicity, but the notion is, is that every one of God's properties is therefore identical. When I'm saying that God is omnipotent, I'm saying in the very same statement, logically entailed and a logically identical statement, God is omniscient, God is omnipresent, God is immutable. All of those are entailed in the notion of his simplicity. And so Thomas Aquinas essentially begins with the notion of aseity, nothing acts upon God, and God is the source of everything else. The next thing he develops is that God is simple. He has no parts. And so when we're talking about God, he's, he's fundamentally different. And it's not merely in the fact that he's uncreated and we're created, but the nature of his uncreated being is so different. He couldn't have a body. The common statement is God has no body, parts, or passions. And so God couldn't be a body. And I, I say that instead of have a body, but God couldn't be a body. Because in order to have a body, it would have to be something complex made up of different cells. But God couldn't have different parts like that. So the notion is, is that God is, is ontologically secure. The bottom line is that we're, we're dealing with that kind of a notion of ontological simplicity. It's a notion of what I want to call metaphysical simplicity. So with that background explanation and knowledge of simplicity, you go into the logical dilemma. I don't think going through each of these is going to make any sense on a podcast. I think they have to be read. So let me give just kind of a summary of the argument. If God has no parts, then it can't be that he could communicate something to us. The problem is, let's say that God can communicate some property to us. Let's say he communicates his energies to us. But God has only incommunicable properties. Or we want to say that God's incommunicable properties are identical to whatever communicable properties he has. But if there can't be both communicable and incommunicable properties in God, it follows that there aren't any communicable properties at all. 
And so the notion of divine simplicity is logically impossible if we want to say that God also shares some properties with us through the energies and by having us participate in his life. And then the next part that you go into, it's kind of what I teased, you know, this problem of the Son of God can't really be other in relation to the Father with this metaphysical monotheism. But then you come up, you know, perhaps there's a conclusion that can be supported by an argument, and then you go through the argument. I think this argument is understandable, so you can walk through it. Okay. So you gave the first step. Human nature is such that for each person, S, who possesses human nature, S is essentially created in some respect. Two, divine nature is such that for each person, S, who possesses divine nature, S is essentially uncreated in all respects, included within divine nature. Number three, a nature defines what is essential to the kind that an individual is. Four, it is impossible for a single person, S, to possess both human, that is created in at least some essential respects, and also divine, that is uncreated in all essential respects, natures, because a thing cannot both be essentially created in some respects and also uncreated in all respects. Five, Christ possessed both human and divine natures. And six, you know, we go back to the premise, number four entails the denial of number five, therefore one of them has to be false. What this is saying is very simple, and that is that to be both human and divine would entail that we are created in some respects and uncreated in other respects, but to be fully divine in the tradition, especially the Thomistic tradition, means that God is uncreated in all respects because none of his properties can be distinct. And obviously, we derive a contradiction from that. You can't both be uncreated in all respects and also created in some respects. It's just a logical contradiction. And uh, as you point out, uh, the LDS view solves this with humans being created in respect to their mortal bodies, yet uncreated with respect to their eternal spirits. Now, uh, are there other views, especially within the tradition or uh, Protestantism, that hold to some sort of view where we are pre-existent and uncreated? Or is that and unique to, to LDS? It's unique to LDS thought. So that disagreement in LDS thought is no longer one of logic, but uh, what the scriptures say. So if it's possible for Christ to be created in his human nature and yet uncreated in his divine nature, then it is also possible for one possessing a human nature to be created and uncreated, but in different respects, as we just described. Yeah, so the, again, the very central belief of Christianity that a Christian must accept, to accept the most foundational assertion that God became man, has to be denied by the tradition, because it is really logically impossible for a person to be both fully divine and also human in their tradition. And so this tradition is pointed out also, I mean, we, when we ha hear arguments against the possibility of human beings becoming divine, they're really arguments against the possibility of Jesus Christ becoming human. And yeah, you're kind of saying it from the other side. You say that a, a consistent Christology requires rejecting the entire pantheon of absolutist attributes. So Christology also requires rejecting the vast ontological gulf between human nature and divine nature as a matter of metaphysical necessity. Only view that allows for the unity of divine nature and human nature in the same person at the same time can truly claim to be Christian. And what that means is there's only one candidate that can claim to be truly Christian, and that's the view of Joseph Smith. Just kind of ironic, seeing as how because we don't adhere to the other traditions, we are not considered Christian.
Yeah, I mean, I don't think any Mormon would have the chutzpah to say to a Catholic or a Protestant or somebody in the Orthodox tradition, you're not really Christian. Because when we say somebody's Christian, we really mean that they're a follower of Christ. And it's mostly evangelical Protestants who make these kind of assertions, although all of these traditions would rebaptize a Mormon and not accept a Mormon baptism because they say that we have a deficient teaching of the Trinity, or we have a deficient teaching on salvation by grace alone, or we have a deficient understanding of human nature. I think irony abounds in these kinds of assertions because I believe the deficiency is on the other side of the equation. All right. Uh, well, that's the end of the chapter. Are there any other? No, just to tease next time probably. that. So now that we have these ideas in place and the different problems, and the main problem being mostly creationics nihilo, as also a problem for Christology as well as deification in general, Next, we're going to talk more about what it is, in fact, that Mormons then do believe, or at least a range of what Mormons can believe, and then, you know, kind of what we're going to go into next time. What we're going to do is give the scriptural basis for the notions of deification and theosis, and look both at the New Testament and Mormon scriptures, and we'll discuss a range of claims that are being asserted when, you know, we talk about the notion of deification so that we can make some essential distinctions. All right. Well, until then. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploring Mormon thought.